turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles or swipe in your Bibles, and we'll have the passage also up on the screen to Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. And we remember last week that um, Jesus is empowered for his ministry. Um, He essentially begins his ministry, but he hasn't exactly gone public yet with his ministry. And we remember from last week, Jesus is baptized, and a voice speaks out of heaven, and the Spirit lands on him in the form of a dove, in the shape of a dove, and the voice says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And now we come to... um, Jesus's temptation in the wilderness. Um, And beginning in verse 1, it reads, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man should not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is also written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The big idea here from this passage is that if you uh, resist the devil... He'll flee from you. The question that we should be asking is, how do you do that? Let's pray. Father, in your son's name, we come now asking for illumination, Lord, from this passage. Meet us this morning in this sermon and in this message and in your word. Illuminate our hearts and minds that we may also know how to resist Satan and resist temptation. Father, we pray now that uh, you would uh, anoint the preaching and delivery of your word and transform our hearts as we hear the word preached. Change us. Let us leave different than the way we came in here. And let us be convinced of your word and convicted of its truth. In your son's name we pray. Amen. In the 1999 film, The Matrix, a small group of people have recognized that 
the world that everyone sees with their eyes is really just a sham. Uh, the world is really a ravaged wasteland controlled by computers who really have people uh, plugged in into an unconscious state and they use their heat and their energy uh, to run this big computer system called the Matrix. Um, and this band of rebels, a small group of people who really know the truth, uh, they choose a computer hacker who goes by the name of Neo. And the Matrix has sent out agents who confront these rebels who really know the truth about the world's reality. And among these agents is Agent Smith. He's the most powerful. And when, um, when these rebels, when these, this small group of people who knows the truth about the Matrix runs into Agent Smith, the only thing they can really do is run. He's that powerful. He's never lost a battle. And um, the, the movie uh, heads towards Neo, uh, this computer hacker, learning what the Matrix is all about and also learning how to wield the kind of power where he, when he operates in the Matrix that he can confront Agent Smith. In fact, the best scene of the entire movie, in my opinion, is when um, the look of shock on Agent Smith's face when Neo demonstrates a power superior to any that has come before him. And if you've seen the movie, uh, you know the scene where um, all of the bullets go headed towards Neo and he just raises his hand and all the bullets just fall to the ground and there's this look of shock on Agent Smith's face. It's just a great scene um, in, in the movie. Um, but fighting temptation is combat. There are winners and there are losers and every temptation, at the least, is a skirmish with the flesh. And at the most, some temptations are a fight to the death with Satan. So what is temptation? Well, there's a helpful definition. Temptation is seduction to evil, solicitation to wrong. It stands distinguished from trials. Thus, trial, a trial tests us. And it seeks to discover a man's moral qualities or character. But temptation persuades to evil. Temptation deludes that it may ruin. The one means to undeceive and the other to deceive. The one aims at the man's good, making him conscious of his true moral self. But the other at his evil leading him more or less unconsciously into sin. God tries us, Satan tempts us. That was a definition by a congregational Scottish minister from the 1800s named Andrew Fairbairn. But last week in our sermon, we talked about, um, we explored Luke's genealogy of Jesus, tracing Jesus' humanity all the way back to Adam. And the point that uh, in that genealogy is to demonstrate that Jesus isn't a superman. You know, sometimes we think of Jesus and we think of him like a superhero or like someone who has come down from heaven and is pretending to be a human being, but in reality, he's not. And on one hand, we want to say it is true that Jesus is more than a man, 
but he is a man nonetheless. And that's what Luke's genealogy, tracing back to Adam, is really all about. There was actually an early Christian heresy called docetism, from the Greek word dokeo, meaning seem. It, some people believe that Jesus only seemed to be like a human being, but really he wasn't. And we want to say that that's not true, that Jesus was really a human being. He was really a man, and we make this point because the temptations that he experienced as a man were real. One New Testament scholar states, because Jesus is the descendant of Adam, he has to face what Adam faced. In fact, the story contains echoes of Adam and Eve in the garden with the serpent, whispering lies about God. And there's also echoes, echoes of Israel in the wilderness. Israel comes out of Egypt through the Red Sea with God, declaring, um, God declares that Israel was his son, his firstborn, And then it was the 40-year wandering in the wilderness where Israel grumbled for bread, flirted disastrously with idolatry, and continually put God to the test. And now, like Neo in the Matrix, Jesus is confronted by evil's most capable agent, the devil himself. Now, the word devil comes from the Greek word diabolos, which means accuser. And the accuser tempts Jesus in three areas of temptation. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Where for 40 days he endured temptations from the devil, he ate nothing during those days, and when they were completed, he was famished. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him and said, it is written, man does not live by bread alone. What's important for us to see here is that Jesus is not acting on his own. The Bible says that he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He's filled with the Spirit, he's full of the Spirit, but he's driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. So lest we think that Jesus kind of just wanders into trouble, like, oh man, how did I get here? He's being led specifically by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness, um, con- against our ideas of the wilderness, now I'm into hiking and backpacking, and some of you like camping and those types of things, but when we think of the wilderness, we think of pristine forest, rivers and streams, beautiful mountain landscapes, crisp mountain air, you know, the, the, the cry of an eagle, you know. Uh, the wilderness in southern Palestine at this time is an utterly devastated place. As a matter of fact, the the original Hebrew word is translated the devastation. The place that Jesus is at is called the devastation. There are no trees, there are no streams, it is only dangerous rocky uh, outcrops, uh, absolutely dangerous um, where where the stone is crumbling and there's all of these, you know, these areas of, of, uh, of danger and um, so it's not the kind of wilderness we're thinking of 
It's the kind of wilderness where if you're not careful, you could dehydrate and die. And Jesus has fasted for 40 days. Now, some commentators think that what this means was that he didn't take any provisions with him and only ate what was available there, which would be essentially next to nothing. And other commentators say, no, Jesus actually did not eat a single thing for 40 days. But the point is, is afterwards, he is famished. He's starving. Um, And the whole point that, the whole reason the Spirit sends him into the wilderness is because as the Messiah, his character must be proven. My grandfather was a boxer and um, stayed around boxing his whole life, lived in Vegas for the last 30 years of his life, and would even help train boxers. And when there's a guy that they know has incredible talent and potential, what they do is they put him against other people to build his confidence, but ultimately he has to confront the reigning champ. And if and the analogy breaks down on some level, but, it, but the truth is, is that as far as the world is concerned, Satan up to this point is kind of the reigning champ. You know, he's like Agent Smith. Everyone he's run into before Jesus, he's beaten, right? We think of Adam in the garden. We think of uh, Noah who got drunk after, you know, the flood was over. We think of David who committed the sin with Bathsheba. We think of, you know, all of these different, you know, powerful men of God who fall into sin and temptation. And up until this point, the devil's kind of had his rule of the roost. You know, he's the reigning champ. And so Jesus' character as the Messiah is going to be put to the test. Um, God, of course, is sovereign, but the devil has a certain supremacy over men up until this point. In fact, Jesus in John 14 actually calls Satan the prince of this world. Jesus, if Jesus is going to fix what Adam broke, he has to win this battle. So I want you to see and think about and orient Orient your minds towards temptation as being a battle. It was not only a battle for Jesus, it's a battle for you. Every time you're tempted, it's a battle. And so Jesus has been fasting, and Satan whispers, make this stone bread, you know, if you're the son of God, essentially saying, you know, you've earned it. Temptations come to us when we're weak and vulnerable And when our flesh tells us, you deserve it. In fact, to justify giving in to temptation, something has to break down in our resistance where we feel that it's not as bad as it could be. If we give in to this temptation, you know, we've, we've fought the good fight over here and over there. This one little temptation, this one little sin is, is not going to be that big of a deal. We know it's wrong, but And so there's a process of justifying, and Satan is trying to get Jesus to justify. You're hungry. And Jesus was hungry. You know, it's not a a completely implausible idea. You're hungry. Why don't you make this stone bread and in the process demonstrate who you are? Jesus knows that God will provide food, but his flesh is tempted to take what he feels he deserves. He remembers how Israel failed to trust God for food in the wilderness. And he quotes Deuteronomy 8 and 3. And he says this, he says, Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word 
that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What is Jesus' weapon against temptation? It's the word of God. Jesus' weapon against temptation is the word of God. And he says, when he says that man doesn't live by bread alone, what he means to say is that we don't serve our bellies. We don't serve our appetites. We don't simply live to satisfy our bodily longings and our desires. John Piper said, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you've nibbled so long at the table of the world. Jesus says in Matthew 5 and 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And what Jesus is doing is demonstrating that Israel fell in the wilderness because they were focused only on their own physical needs and not ultimately that spiritual meat that God wanted to give. Jesus said in another place, My meat and drink is to do the will of my Father. And secondly, there's the desire of the eyes in Luke 4, beginning in verse 5. Then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in a flash all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, to you I will grant this whole realm and the glory that goes along with it, for it has been relinquished to me, and I can give it to anyone I wish. Now, I grew up hearing, well, it wasn't the devil's to begin with, and Jesus already had you know, all of the kingdoms of the world in his power. I want to pull a Dwight Schrute here and say false. That's, exa- that's not exactly the truth. Actually, Satan does have some power over the kingdoms of the world that God has given him up until this point. He is, for all intents and purposes, the, the prince of this world at that time. And Jesus... He knows that all of the kingdoms of the world are going to be given to him, but it had not happened yet. And the question was, was Jesus going to trust that the Father was able to give him the kingdoms of the world that at that moment were in the control of another? And we think about the Israelites, who had been promised the land of Canaan, but the land of Canaan was in the power of the Canaanites. And they were tempted to grab a hold of that power in a way other than God's providence, right? First, when they come out of Egypt, God says, you know, I'm with you. Go into the land. They go into the land, and they see that there are walled cities and giants, and they go, no way. And God says, but I'm with you. Joshua and Caleb says, we can take the promised land. But the other ten spies doubted. Then finally, when they got up the courage to go into the land, God says, don't do it. I'm not with you right now. And they went in and they were slaughtered. And so Jesus is tempted to grab a hold of the kingdoms of the world which have been promised to him. You say, where did God promise the kingdoms of the world to Jesus? Well, Psalm 2-7, God says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth, your possession. In Daniel 7.14, God says, To the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Jesus knows all the kingdoms will ultimately be his, but at this moment, he has nothing. And Satan, like a prospective seller, you know, pointing out the goods, says, all this can be yours. You know, he's, he's like a Monty Hall or something, you know, it's a talk show host, you know. All this can be yours for the low, low price of your soul, your allegiance to the Father. You know, Satan, when we're tempted, that's essentially the same proposition that we face when we think about giving into temptation, committing sin. This can be yours for the low, low cost of betraying God. This can be yours for the low, low cost of blaspheming, falling into idolatry. Temptation to sin is ultimately a matter of loyalty to the Father. You know, this is why um, Israel's sin is called adultery. Because it betrays that covenantal relationship with the Father. If you think sin has no real consequences other than feeling rotten for a minute, you know, you're mistaken. Sin destroys fellowship with God. And it destroys the confidence that we have in prayer. When we give in to temptation, we don't go to God with confidence. We go with our tail between our legs and our head down. Now, of course, we're not worthy, you know, of God's love and grace. But when you're fighting the good fight against sin, there's a, you can, you can walk to God, yes, humbly, but with your chin up, you know, knowing that you're fighting the good fight. But what sin does is it robs us of that fellowship with the Father. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus again responds with the weapon of Scripture. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13 where Moses told the Israelites, you are to worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The Israelites were promised Canaan. Canaan was in the hand of the Canaanites. Instead of trust, they feared that God wasn't able to make good on his promises. You know, in many ways, when we give in to sin, we're doing the exact same thing. God has promised us joy everlasting and all kinds of good things. When we sin, we want to immediately have, you know, we want instant gratification. We want to gratify the flesh because there's doubt in our mind that God really wants to give us, ultimately, all of the riches of heaven. When we sin, we're not really believing the promises of God. It's more than just a physical urge or an emotional urge. We're not believing God's promises for us. Some of you may have come in a little later, but I talked about this morning at Panera. You know, I'm standing in line. There's a guy at the counter, and some guy comes out of blue and just walks right up in front of me and stands right in front of me and just takes cuts right in front of me. And, you know, there was a time in my life where I would have, you know, poked him in the shoulder and I would have said, the line's back there, bro. You know? I mean, I'm serious. And I sat there and I just, you know, I just had to. But, you know, I'm thinking of what God calls me to be, you know, patient and long-suffering. And there's nothing wrong with saying to someone, hey, you cut in front of me, the line's back there. And he probably would have said, oh, I didn't realize that. But I think he did realize that. 
I told you when I, when I did get called up, you know, at the same time as him, the, the, the person that helped me, the name tag said JC, you know, and uh, <clears throat> it was just God, you know, letting me know that he, he, he was seeing my struggle. But the Israelites were promised Canaan and they failed to trust God. Daryl Bach, in his commentary on Luke, he says this. He says, Jesus will rule on earth, but that authority will come from God and not the devil. The son's loyalty will be rewarded with sovereignty because of the father's loyalty. No offer is great enough to persuade Jesus to abandon his father. Such total allegiance to God is exemplary. And that's ultimately what sin, what temptation is challenging. Temptation challenges our loyalty to God. Now for Jesus, there is a difference between Jesus and us. Temptation for Jesus was external. It presented itself, but he did not internalize it. He saw it, he confronted it, he processed it, but he didn't internalize that temptation. The difference with us is when we're tempted, it comes inside of us, it's internalized, and you know, even in our hearts, sometimes we go down that road of temptation, committing even kind of like a preliminary sin in our hearts. And this is why Jesus says that if a man even lusts after a woman in his heart, you know, he's committed adultery in his heart. But Jesus didn't internalize that temptation. And finally, Jesus is tempted with the pride of life. In Luke 4, 9 through 12, it says, Then the devil brought him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And with their hands, they will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, Jesus is quoting, I mean, now Satan is quoting Scripture. Twice Jesus has quoted the word of God, and now Satan says, okay, two can play at that game, and he quotes the word of God. What is interesting is that Satan knows who Jesus is. In fact, Satan, it's been said, the devil and his angels have better theology than a lot of people. You know, he knows the truth. He knows Jesus is the son of God, and he knows the word of God. And so he quotes the word of God. He's actually quoting Psalm 91.11. The devil's trying to get Jesus to doubt he's God's son. If Jesus would have thrown himself down from the temple, it would have been both pride and doubt. Pride to prove I am the son of God and doubt because um, it would have been his way of reaffirming his identity. But Jesus didn't need that affirmation. Jesus knew who he was. And Jesus answers and says, you're not to put the Lord your God to the test. But you want to know why Jesus knew who he was? The Spirit doesn't lead Jesus out into the wilderness simply because the Spirit says he's tough enough. Even Jesus needed to hear his father's voice, the passage we preached last week. Jesus is baptized. He hears God's voice. This is my beloved son. 
even he needed to hear his, father, his father's voice saying, you're my son. Jesus is not sent into the wilderness unequipped, ill-equipped, without any defense against temptation. He knows because he knows the spirit is with him and that the father has spoken, you're my beloved son. When we put God to the test, it's really unbelief masquerading as faith. And there's something really interesting that I found when I studied this passage this past week. It's that all three temptations Jesus experiences relate to his identity as God's son. They tempt him to doubt the father's love for him and calling on his life. And for us, temptation to sin is on a fundamental level about us not believing who we are. When we sin, we're not believing the gospel. The gospel says that God, by his son, has made us children of God, sons and daughters, adopted into his family, made us new creations. And when we sin, there's something very fundamental that says, I don't believe that. I don't believe I'm a new creation. I don't believe I'm a child of God. That's on a fundamental level what's going on with us when we sin. Because if we truly understood who we were, how God has made us new creatures, sin would be something that we would view much differently. We would see sin differently. Jesus was tempted to doubt he was God's son, Those temptations were, as we said, external. Everything in him knew, unlike Adam in the garden, who gave in to Satan's whispering lies, and Israel in the wilderness, who also gave in to Satan's whispering lies, he knew he was God's true son. And those temptations never took root in him. Temptations for us are internalized, when we doubt or forget that we're God's children. Satan whispers lies to us, and when we sin, we're actually lying about our identity. If I go and cheat on my wife, I'm essentially saying, I'm not a married man. I'm telling a lie about my marriage to her. If I don't provide for my children, I'm telling a lie about my identity as their father. When we sin, we're telling a lie about our relationship to God. Because God is holy and he's made us his children through Jesus Christ by his grace. So the question is this, how do we overcome temptation? Right? We can all agree, yes, temptation, bad. Sin, bad. Okay, now what? How do we overcome temptation? We overcome temptation by the word of God, the sword of the spirit, 1 John 2, 14, because the word of God abides in you, you have overcome the evil one. At all three temptations, Jesus quotes the word of God. There is a power in the word of God that is supernatural. We read the Bible, we learn the Bible, we memorize the Bible because the Bible calls us back to faithfulness in God. 
It calls us back to covenant faithfulness with the God who has entered into relationship with us. That's what the Bible does. This is not just a book with a nice binder on it. This book contains the words of life. This is God's word. We overcome also temptations partly by resolution. A made-up mind. 1 Peter 4 and 1 says, Arm yourselves with the same mind that was in Christ. You know, the Bible says, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Right? And let that man think he will receive nothing from the Lord. A made-up mind is a powerful thing to fight against temptation. But ultimately... We overcome because Jesus helps us in temptation. And he can do this because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He was able to do those. He was able to help. He's able to help us because he was tempted. Hebrews 2.18. And finally, we overcome because our reward is great. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those that love him. Temptation is combat. Temptation is battle with the accuser, the enemy of your soul. Temptation is a fight, and in every fight, there's a winner and a loser. And then in conclusion, the Christian discipline of fighting temptation isn't about self-hatred, okay? So it's important for us to know that we're called to fight against temptation not because God wants us all to live like monks. There are many wonderful things in this world to be enjoyed. I enjoy classic rock. There's a lot, you know, there's a, a lot of great things in this world to enjoy that aren't sinful. But there are things that are specifically prohibited in Scripture. Right? So God is not calling us to some asceticism where we hate our bodies and deny us any single pleasure. That's not what the Christian life is. Christian life is about loyalty and faithfulness to our relationship with the God who loved us so much that he called us by his grace to know him, even though we didn't deserve it. Christian discipline is not about self-hatred or rejecting parts of our humanity. One pastor said, it's about celebrating God's gift of full humanity and, like someone learning a musical instrument, discovering how to tune it and play it to its best possibility. As you grow in faith and fight temptation, you're learning how to fine-tune and play an instrument. And that's your life. You know, you're learning the parts to avoid and you're learning the things that God is glorified in. At the heart of our resistance to temptation is love and loyalty to God who has already called us his beloved children in Christ and who holds out before us the calling to follow him in the path which leads to true glory. In that glory lies true happiness, true fulfillment, which neither the world nor the flesh nor the devil even begin to imitate. Let's pray.
Lord, our joy is sapped by the sins that we give into. We recognize that temptation alone is not sinful, but Lord, the struggle is always to internalize the temptation. Father, help us to hate our sins, to recognize temptation as being from Satan, and to hate our sins, to loathe our sins, and Lord, to run to you for help. Sometimes fighting temptation is a minute-by-minute battle. Father, give us the victory over sin. Give us the victory over temptation, and let us glorify you as your children. You've made us into new creatures, adopted us into your family. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.